Welcome back to another episode of the Urban Guru Podcast, where we feature insights from artists and professionals of color. On today's podcast, we'll interview Milton Davis. Not only is this man a prolific novelist, having published over 20 novels, he's also an editor of several anthologies, an award-winning writer, the owner of his own publishing company, MV Media, in Atlanta, Georgia, and by day, his mild-mannered alter ego is a chemical engineer. That's right, folks. So stay tuned for an enjoyable chat with Milton Davis of MV Media. Thank you for agreeing to do this interview with me. Oh, no um, problem. And I was looking at your bio <laughs> and it's like, wow. Avi, <laughs> Avi, come on. Okay. I knew you were, you were a Black speculative fiction writer. And yeah. I knew that you owned MV Media you know, a small publishing company, but all these other things, I knew you did the anthologies, but I did not realize that you were the editor and co-editor of 10 anthologies. Yeah. yeah. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But see, anthologies are easy. You get a bunch of people to do all the writing and all you do is put it all together. <laughs> so they're, they're easy to do. You okay. Know? Okay. You know? <laughs> but what about 21 novels? So come on. <laughs> That's, well, a lot that's, of, right. that's a lot of work. So I guess one of my questions, one of my first questions is, it's like, how long have you been um, a Black speculative writer? Um, I officially started in 2005. That's when I started writing. Mm -hmm. um, I started publishing and releasing my books in 2008. Okay. Um, so I took like, a, um, I took those three years to sit down and write my, well, it should have been my first three books, but my first two books. Okay. Yeah. Um, that third book has never been written and completely <laughs> it's, it's still sitting there waiting to be written. And, uh -huh. and I promised I was going to finish it either this year or next year, but I spent that time writing books and studying the industry mm -hmm. and all that different stuff like that. Well, let me ask you this. Um, how did you even come to writing? I mean, was it something you always did? Did you write when you were younger? Did you have parents who wrote around you or read to you? What was that? That was a, a long evolution. You know, we, we grew up readers, you know, you're from Columbus. I, we lived in, um, we lived in Cedar Hills. Okay. And um, we moved there when I was like about six years old and the bookmobile used to stop in front of our house. It stopped on our corner and yeah, yeah. me and me and my sisters would just walk in there get a bunch of books, walk out when it came back and take those books. <laughs> like that. So, and plus when, even before then, um, we, um, I was born in North Carolina, but I don't remember being there. We moved from there when I was like three years old. Okay. Um, my first memories were, uh, we used to live in, um, and you'll notice too, we used to live in Buena Vista Estates. That's where oh. we used to live. And there used to be a convenience store, like on the right down on the bottom of the hill there. They just recently tore that little strip mall down. Mm -hmm. But my mom would give us a dollar. Mm -hmm. Each one of us a dollar every time she got paid. And we would get a comic book, a candy bar, a soda and a bag of potato chips <laughs> with one dollar and have change. Wow. So that's kind of how the writing, the, the reading journey came. The writing was just kind of sporadic. I, I think the first time I did anything that was when I was in the fifth grade, um, we had a, um, what do you call it? I don't want to call it a, uh, it was for um, advanced students. We used to go to Carver High School mm -hmm. for advanced classes and mm -hmm. I chose for some odd reason, I can't, to this day, I can't really tell you, I guess because I read so much, I chose um, the English um, okay. advanced reading. 
So we would go there, we would read, we would write and stuff like that. Um, somewhere along the line, I, I was actually doing art and writing at the time. Um, I decided to um, write a play. Mm -hmm. And it was a play about the evils of drug use. And I gave, and I just wrote it on my own. I gave it to my teacher. She liked it. And next thing you know, they were doing it at the PTA. You know, we had picked people out and all that kind of stuff like that. So <laughs> that was really my first encounter with writing. But then I didn't do anything else after that. Didn't mm -hmm. do any kind of writing after that until I was in college, uh, majoring in chemistry. Mm -hmm. uh, Anna Holloway, she was my uh, English uh, instructor. And the first the first time I wrote an essay in her class, she said, um, I need you to come by my office. And I'm like, okay, what did I do wrong? You know, like that, you know. And she sat down and said, you know, she said, you're made, what's your major? I said, chemistry. She said, you shouldn't be a chemistry major. You should be a writer. Wow. And, and I said, well, that's nice, but writers don't make any money. And and I'm living proof of that today. And <laughs> I said, I said to you, so, so you became a chemist. Huh? <laughs> yeah, I, I'm, a, I'm a chemist. I've been a research chemist forever. But she I, I always said it was her plan to get me in the, the way she planned to get me into writing is that she she was the person that introduced me into science fiction. OK, at that point, I never read science fiction. I always just read history stuff and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. And she introduced me to Campbell, Asimov, all the all the all the classic people and stuff. Uh -huh. And I'm reading them and I'm in college. So this is like assignments to me. I'm reading this stuff and studying it and stuff like that. And then she started talking me into like writing stuff and she would read it and critique it and stuff like that. So by the time I graduated from Fort Valley, I was like, OK, I'm going to be a chemist, but I probably could do this writing thing on the side, you know, that kind of thing. And so I played around it. After I graduated from college, got married, I played around with it a little bit, mm -hmm. and then I kind of dropped it. You know, I sent I sent some stuff out. Well, I took a um, Writer's Digest class where they hooked, they hooked you up with a with a published author, and you did this course with them. And then at the end of it, you took the you 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 um, submitted to their Writers of the Future contest. Mm -hmm. I got an honorable mention, and then I took a another class um, at Emory. Mm -hmm. By that time, I realized I was pretty decent writer. So I started sending stuff out, went from form rejections to actually editors were actually reading my stories and saying, hey, I think this is pretty good, but it's not really for us. And they would suggest other magazines and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. Then, you know, me and my wife, we started having kids and stuff. And then I just dropped it. Mm -hmm. And um, from time to time, I would go back to it, play with it. But it wasn't until I turned 45. And that's when I said, you know what, the one thing that you've always wanted to do and you never really have done is you know, write and publish. And at the time, um, self-publishing was becoming pretty popular. Mm -hmm. um, basically, the entire street lit industry was basically people self-publishing their own stuff. Um, my wife actually bought me a, a, she was in a bookstore and she said, there was this guy selling this book and I bought it for you to read it. And I got the book and I started reading. I was like, man, I could write this, you know, <laughs> like, you know, this, you know this, it was a street lit book. I'm like, man, I can do this, you know? So, <laughs> so that kind of started me on that on that path and that's and that's how it's been ever since you know um mm -hmm. I, I chose self-publishing because i looked at the industry and i didn't feel like wanted at the, the fact that i wanted to write science fiction and fantasy based on african african diaspora culture i came to the conclusion that the industry as it was then wouldn't be interested in what i was writing mm -hmm. and it was really more important for me to write what i wanted to write mm -hmm. and then sell it to people who i felt would be interested in that type of writing in that industry and I had my I had had my own business before so mm -hmm. doing it myself wasn't intimidating to me you know I, I'd had my own business so I knew the process I just had to adapt the process to mm -hmm. publishing and so that's why I did it that's why I started self-publishing and I've been doing it ever since 
That's, okay, that, that's interesting. Um, kind of curious what kind of business you had, but you don't, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I actually had it. Um, I actually um, had a business where we were manufacturing and selling uh, floor care products. That was my expertise at the time. Um, I, I'm going to brag a little bit on that. At the time I started that business, I was one of the top floor finished chemists in the country. And um, I decided that and, and I saw in the industry that it was an opportunity for me to build a business that would be beneficial to um, other black businesses that were in the industry. Okay. And, and me having this kind of business would provide them with some of the things that they weren't able to get the way that the business business was at that time. And so I did that for about five years. Um, but I got to the point where I needed a sizable amount of investment to get to my next level. Uh-huh. And what I needed to get, what I, what I needed to give up to get that investment, I didn't feel like it was worth it. So I decided to just shut the business down and and uh, go go back to work as a chemist. Okay. I always tell people I was one loan away from you guys never knowing who I was. And <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we're, we're going to get to that because believe it or not, even though we grew up literally you throw a stone and hit each other's house and we have siblings and know each other. The first time I came across you was out of your, when you did the um, state of black science fiction and fantasy at Dragon yeah. mm-hmm. That's the first time I came across you, but I, but I wanted to um, um, go back to, you chose the indie route because you felt that what you wanted to write, it was going to be hard to get it through the traditional gatekeepers. So to yeah. speak. Mm-hmm. How did you get focused on writing about ancient Africa? I mean, we both come from from the same place. I don't I don't remember growing up hearing too many people talk about. <laughs> it wasn't until I came up with you know, Howard University of all places, and you walk down the street, and there's this big um, um, what well, not not the uh, but the um, the face, the, the the Egyptian face on the front of yeah. a bookstore. You know, uh-huh. and you see a Malcolm X tapes <laughs> and stuff like that. It's like, oh, okay. It's like, oh, <laughs> yeah. this stuff existed. Now I understand what some of the people were saying a long time ago. Yeah. And then yeah. looking at Holly Garima, he's a really conscious type person. So it's like, how did you, coming out of Columbus, Georgia, how did you get focused in on ancient Africa? My 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 introduction to African history was actually at Fort Valley. Okay. Um, I had a instructor named Dr. Grant. Mm-hmm. who oddly enough was a white instructor <laughs> and he taught African history <laughs> and and that's what I first heard about the Kushites and all this stuff you know Egypt you know Egypt was always around but it was never presented as being a a, a black African culture mm-hmm. and um but when I had Dr. Um, Grant that's when I got introduced to all that you know okay. and it was fascinating because I'm a big history buff anyway and um that's where I was first introduced to it as far as how I got into it from a writing standpoint in the nineties, um, I just had this decision. I said, you know, I know so much about European history and American history, but I don't know anything about African history. Mm-hmm. So I just set out to just educate myself on that. I started, mm-hmm. you know, searching for books, going to the libraries, reading them and stuff like that. Just everywhere I went, you know, I, I typically I went through my African Renaissance and I was wearing like kente ties and had my kufi and you know I was you know I was like into it a thousand percent and stuff wow. you know yeah. and 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 I at first I thought I wasn't gonna be able to find a lot of information because I had never been exposed to it in the past. But mm-hmm. every time I started digging, I started finding more and more information. And it was a thing about at first I was trying to say, well, am I gonna have enough information to start? But then I got to a point saying, man, where do I start? I got so much information, you know, what do, where do I start first and stuff, you know? And that just kind of, that really started me into 
into doing that. And by the time I decided to start writing on a, on a regular basis, I had already determined that this is the direction that I wanted to write from because this was my, this was basically a part of my history mm-hmm. that went beyond you know the Middle Passage, and I felt like it was something that was important for people to know. And I felt one of the best vehicles to educate people on that history was through fiction, you know, mm-hmm. and, and, and science fiction and, and fantasy was just something that I liked, that I liked. So I said, I would just incorporate that into, incorporate that history into those genres and stuff. And you, and you kind of reminded me, I think for me, it was college even, and again, what you were saying, even getting into, first of all, the traditional, you know, science fiction and fantasy big authors like Asimov and stuff. I didn't find out about that. And then Herbert with Dune and stuff till mm-hmm. I was in college. I mm-hmm. was introduced to them at the, at the same time. But I remember when I came up to Howard, um, I had a professor who spoke like seven different languages. He could speak the um, clicking tongue of um, South, from South Africa, the band. Oh, yeah. The, yeah. Like fantastic. Because he grew up there, Professor Ford. And so, like you said, when he was growing up, he had to speak Spanish and Italian and all this stuff because you're playing soccer here. And so, But he went up to the board and he talked about history. And he drew a circle and he says, okay, this represents Western European history. When they were going through their thousand years of the dark ages and stuff like that, you still had Far East and you still had Africa and they were fine and they were doing their stuff. Mm-hmm. And when he put that up there, it like it blew my mind because I always loved history too. I would read encyclopedias. I would look up stuff on foreign, you know, I wanted to go to all these different places and I liked history. And when he threw that up there, it just never dawned on me that I was siloed into a Western history perspective on everything. Yeah. And when yeah. he did that, it just blew it so, so open. And then I just, like I said, I'm here in D.C. And that's when I went on my knowledge journey and stuff like that. And you started learning about these things. It's like, where was all this information before? You know, where was all yep. this? Yep. Uh, I, I, tell, I tell people it was hidden in plain sight. Yeah. You know, it was yeah. there, but nobody was taking you to it and nobody was sharing it with you. And yes. And you also discovered just some of the things that you actually like in science fiction and fantasy or in comic books, you find that it had an African source. Yep. And the people who are using it know that. <laughs> yep. <laughs> Which is why yep. I, it's kind of funny now when people talk about race swapping and bending. It's like, yeah, that kind of sort of happened when they took those original African tales and, you know, washed them, you know. So yeah, you know, yeah. Um, I, I'll tell people, I said the history of ancient Egypt is probably the biggest example of whitewashing ever, mm-hmm. you know, because, um, you know, we're talking about indigenous African cultures that developed this civilization and you don't really see an, an introduction of anything outside of that until you get to the Ptolemies from Greek, from Greece, mm-hmm. you know. And um, people argue about it, but, you know, the facts are there, you know, mm-hmm. and so it's always been situations, even when you see um, when I when I was doing research on uh, the Moors and, and Moorish Spain, mm-hmm. you still had people up to a certain point who were debating whether or not the Moors were actually um, black skinned Africans. Yeah. I'm like, OK, how can you argue this every painting? an image you have from that time period depicts Moors like that. These people could see, they knew what they were drawing. I mean, oh, oh, Shakespeare's Othello, <laughs> you know? So how can you argue that point when it's obviously there? But that just kind of shows you the, um, the um, I guess the, the, um, the effort to tone down that narrative and um, 
And just on the, on this, I'll stop in a minute. There was when I was doing some research on what um, for one of my books, um, I wanted to have a character who was a, this was a steampunk novel, and it was an alternate history situation in the 1870s. And I wanted to have one of my characters be originally from Cuba, mm -hmm. and I wanted her to be part of this revolution. And I was calling myself basing this on the Cuban Revolution in the 50s and the 60s. But when I started doing the research, I found out that during the 18 during the 19th century, there was a there was actually a revolution going on in Cuba for freedom that lasted almost 30 years. Mm -hmm. And the biggest hero of that revolution was a black man by the name Antonio Maceo. He was the most the, he was the, the well-known general, fought the Spanish. And and see, we when we learn about um, uh, Cuba, we learned that the USS Maine was blown up in Havana Harbor and then we ended the war. But in reality, the Cubans had been in revolt for those, all those years, and they were just about to win that revolution mm -hmm. when America stepped in. Mm -hmm. you know. And so it was a 30-year a history leading up to that, and I didn't know any of this stuff. And I started learning about all this history and stuff like that. And, you know, and it was like, man, and when, but after the Americans moved in, and they had all these paintings and pictures of Antonio Maceo because he got killed in battle. The Americans started saying, well, why don't you start lightening up his skin a little bit in these paintings and stuff, you know? <laughs> and so when you see some of the later later paintings of Antonio Maceo, he looks like he's white, you know? Mm -hmm. So it's just, these are the things that you find out when you start really, and all you have to do is go to the original sources. You don't have to, you know, yeah. you know, because one of the biggest problems that they had in Spain was that the Spanish planters were trying to say, well, Anto because Antonio Maceo is black, if we, if they, if the, if the revolutionaries win the war, they're going to turn Cuba into another Haiti. <laughs> and that was an argument to keep people from supporting Antonio Maceo, you know, but anyway, uh, I can yeah, go on yeah. forever. Don't get me no, started but, on history. <laughs> but it is fascinating because, you know, I, I, um, I was able to hear you on a panel recently and, and you were, you and um, Beverly, I forget your last name, but y'all talking about the history. Billy Jenkins, yeah. Yeah, in, in the different history and stuff. And I was um, I was listening to one guy who was talking about original sources and it used to be that way back in the day, you'd have to fly here and here and go to the, where they were kept to get them. But then nowadays, for whatever reason, so many universities and, and, and museums and stuff like that, they're going back and they're putting these original sources, they're scanning them. Yeah. And there's much more access to original sources from the 1500s to 1600s, where a lot of times they will tell you exactly what these people look like. <laughs> yeah, yeah and, and you don't have to sit there and listen to this history that's coming from this person, that's coming from this person, that's coming from this person that has an agenda. I just bought a book uh, um, uh, about uh, medieval medieval Iberia, which is basically um, Moorish Spain, uh, all Andalus, whatever you want to call it. And it's a collection of papers that were written during that time period, from the beginning of when the uh, Muslims first took over to the end. And there are papers that were written by Christians, Jewish people, uh, Muslim people. And they, these are papers that were written during that time. Yeah. So there's no reason for me to, to listen to people debate about the source, debate about what was happening there, when I can actually go to the source and read what they were writing about. Yeah, and it's always funny when people do these alternative histories, it's always one group of Europeans winning over the other ones. And it's like, but the real history is far more fantastic exactly. than we sometimes, which, which kind of goes in, into what you're saying. You, you're doing aspirational stories, inspirational stories. 
mm-hmm. all the books that you publish through your company. Um, how important is that for you um, that your books come across that, that way? Well, I, I read for escape. I write the kind of books I like to read. Um, I don't want to go through what I have to go through every day as a person and as a person and as a black person and then come and read fiction where the characters are going through the same thing that I'm going through every day. <laughs> there's, there's nothing oh, yeah. I tell I, there's nothing uplifting to me about that. Mm-hmm. So when I when I read and when I write, I want to write stories that, yeah, you know, you want your characters to have struggles and go through things. But eventually I want my characters to be able to work things out. Mm-hmm. I want things to end well for them. And because um, to me, that's why I read. I read for escape. I read to see that happy ending. I read to see that struggle and that triumph. And, and I think for, and I think for black people, I think it's very it's a it's a it's a, it's, a, it's especially important. We need to tell the stories about our struggles. People need to see those stories um, because it's because of the fact that they've been people have been trying to hide them that we don't get the real impact of what we went through as a people. But at the same time, we need to have stories that balance that because we grew up in the South. We grew up in the Jim Crow South. We know what our parents and our grandparents went, went through. But at the same time, we know that they had good times mm-hmm. and they celebrated. And they and a lot of them accomplished what they wanted to accomplish within these restrictions and stuff. And I think we need to balance and our stories need to be balanced by those stories. And so that's why I, I feel I said there's plenty of people that can give you this other side of it, but this is the side I'm going to concentrate on because these are the stories that I, I that I want to tell. Yeah, and I remember having that conversation when I was still working for the school system up there with one of the English teachers, and we were talking about, you know, they always pick out the black novel always around February that the class is going to read and stuff like that. And I was having a conversation. It's like, and she said it herself. It was a black English teacher. And she says, you know, so many times they give the award to people, and what these students are reading is like you just said it's the rough stuff that they might be experiencing in life. Now they're going to come and read a novel about a character who's on the streets. Yeah. And, you know, and it's, and it's like, and so I, I really like your push for um, aspirational African content. Plus you're giving people a little history lesson. You're giving them content. I mean, when I'm reading your books or listening to the audio book, it's like some of the details that you have in there. Like um, for the one that with the with the father and, and the daughter playing that game and the detail in there and stuff, oh, yeah. it's like wow, wow. <laughs> yeah. yeah, the long the long walk was a was a fun story, and it was actually inspired by a friend of mine who's from Trinidad, mm-hmm. and he sent me this video one day. He said, "Hey Milton," because he knows I used to be in the martial arts and stuff. He said, "Hey Milton, check this out," and it was a video about the stick fighting style in Trinidad um, using the bois. And I had never heard of that before. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh, man. So I just started reading all these, watching all these videos about this bois stick fighting and stuff, you know. And, and from that video, I started to piece together the story. I knew I wanted that to be part of the story. And I knew about, you know, when you have different African cultures, you have talismans. And, and that talismans can, um, can be possessed by, um, contain the spirit of people and different things like that. So that whole story started to come together mm-hmm. based on that one thing. And, and, um, and the, the, the rhythms and the chants that I got from the story were basically just talking to the same guy mm-hmm. about some of the things that he experienced growing up in, the Trin- in Trinidad. And I tried to incorporate them as much as I could. I didn't want to, I mean, I deliberately did not, you know, have the story take place on Trinidad because I don't know enough about Trinidadian culture mm-hmm. to, to be able to tell a story in that world. 
but I felt like I had enough information to where I could take somebody from that background and bring them into America, particularly the American South during that Obviously, time, which yeah, I do know, yeah. <laughs> you know, and then tell the story in that context, you know. So. Yeah, but it, but it was but it's 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 a different take because that father is coming from a different place. There's an inherent strength in him, but there's also that protectiveness as he's teaching his daughter how to deal with these American bigots. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's, yeah, because it's it's a different culture. You have to you know because um. Something, you know, I'm a Pan-Africanist. I, you know, I believe in Pan-Africanism, but I also acknowledge the fact that, you know, throughout the diaspora and throughout the, throughout the continent, there, we have a bunch of different cultures mm -hmm. and all those cultures bring different experiences. And um, I remember a conversation I was having a few years ago. Um, actually, it was a brother from uh, England who called me and wanted to have a, um, do an interview. And it was me, him and a brother from Nigeria. Mm. And we were talking and we were discussing and we were talking about these cultural differences and stuff about how, you know, I had an example of a brother that um, that I knew that I worked with that was from Cote d'Ivoire, Ivory Coast. And he came, he was taking this class and he came to me one day. He was like looking kind of distraught. I said, what's going on? He said, man, uh, we read this poem in my class written by Maya Angelou. And I've got to write a report on this poem. And I don't know what to write about it and i read the poem and it was a poem that was um written around the civil rights movement and there was a lot of symbolism in the story that if you were african-american mm -hmm. and you were experienced a civil rights movement you knew what she was saying mm -hmm. but he was from ivory coast mm -hmm. and this wasn't in his personal experience so he, he's looking at like what is this stuff so you know i I basically did the essay for him. He got an A on it. <laughs> I, I, I sat down and wrote the essay for him because I knew exactly what she was talking about, you know. And it's those things that you know that are different about our cultures in, in these different parts of the world. And um, and I think that it's um, the challenges as a as an author is um, you know trying to bring those things out and make connections from them, especially if it's not your particular culture, you know. Yeah. And the thing about with them when we were talking about was that. Um, the brother from Nigeria was talking about reading Meji and he was saying he was talking to his mom and he was asking her questions and I was kind of stumped. I was like, well, you know, this is, you know, you live in this culture. He said, yeah, and but we're taught British history. Mm. We're not taught our own history. Mm. So um, he said at some point, uh, African-Americans probably knew more about African history than Africans did because of the way that we were being educated, you know. And, you know, so so it's 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 interesting about how that whole process is, though. Yeah. Oh, oh, interesting. So um, as I mentioned, um, I first met you as the author when you were doing the state of black sci fi. And I think you yeah. were you and the, and the other group of authors um, were doing it at Emory University. I think you're doing like. A, yeah, 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 we did. A, we did. That was actually our first. Um, State of Black Science Fiction presentation was at Emory. Okay. That was the first time we did it. Yeah. Uh -huh. That was and 2012. Then, yeah. And then you came over when I saw you did it at um, DragonCon. Yeah. And you did it two years in a row. And that was the best thing because for me, it really felt like we had a space in DragonCon. Yeah. Because you slowly started seeing us cosplaying, being in the masquerade, and then yeah. all of you came in there. Now you're these authors, but then eventually y'all got, you know, spread to the four winds. Um, <laughs> but there was a quote that you said at one of your things, which I think is really relevant today when we talk, when, when we're going through this change culturally, um, 
and you're starting to see more representation. Mm -hmm. And I know you and, and, and Minister Faust talked about having stuff that's not only about us, but stuff that's done by us, and it's also um, aspirational. But mm -hmm. again, it's not that downtrodden, we're gonna retell the same story. But one of the things that you said, um, and I remember it, and I quote it all the time, and I give you credit for it, it's not me. You said, like going back to those original um, sci-fi masters that you read and stuff, for us to really enjoy comic books and sci-fi and stuff like that, we kind of had to get over not seeing ourselves as the main character. Yeah. Initially. You know? Yeah. Yeah. And that's where that's where we come in now. We're trying to fill that gap. But yeah, I, yeah but I, I really think that's um, I, that really resonates with me because I see so many people now that want to say, well, you don't need to see yourself represented to, to enjoy a story. And it's like, yeah, but we know that. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, when growing up in Columbus, you know, there were certain things I just accepted. I accepted mm -hmm. that when I read these kind of type of stories. Um, I wasn't going to see a black main character, mm -hmm. you know, and because, you know, I'm, I'm growing up, you know, that's just how I was. Just like when I grew up in the South, I accepted the fact that our state flag had a Confederate symbol on it because mm -hmm. we was in the South and that's what people do in the South. You know, we just kind of grew up in that. Our parents were dealing with it and accepting it. So we just kind of accepted the same thing. Mm -hmm. But nothing brings the story home more than to know that to see that main character that looks like you and probably coming from the, the same experiences as you. Mm -hmm. Cause I remember when I first saw um, Octavia Butler's book, um, uh, man, I always forget the name of that book when I want to, when I, when I. Um, Legend, parable of the. Um, it was the one where the woman could change into different um, shapes and stuff like that. Ooh. And, and then there, and she was having the encounter with the guy who was, his name was Doro, who would like consume people's souls and take up, take over them. It wasn't Kindred. It was, um, I always forget the name of that book, but it was actually the first black science fiction book that I read. And I, and I grabbed it because it was on the shelf in Walden books <laughs> and it was a black woman on the front. I was like, I don't even care what this book is about. I'm getting this book. I'm gonna read it, and I and I and I enjoyed it, and I read the whole series and stuff, you know, and 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 I had that deeper connection to it than I had with any other science fiction book I ever read because these characters were black, yeah, and it was and it, and partly and it was partially based in African history, so I connected with that because I because at the time that's what I was reading, you know, mm -hmm. and and, and it, I I think I, I really. Kids that are growing up now, you know, uh, they don't have to dig as much for it as we had to. It's, it's there now. I mean, it's out there. You know, you got N.K. Jemison's won three Hugo Awards in a row. You got Nettie Corfor out there. You know, you got more all, all these different authors out there now. And it's, and it's right there and it's in the mainstream. They don't have to dig and find it and stuff. Mm -hmm. I think about people who probably read my books when I first released them. If you were 10 years old and you read one of my books in 2008, you know, you're 18 years old now. You know, you're you're like in your 20s now and stuff like that. So you have virtually grown up with yeah. black science fiction and fantasy in mm -hmm. front of you. So it's not like you. So you've grown up and you haven't felt deprived by it because it's always been around. You know, so it's 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 really exciting. Yeah, um, a couple more questions. Um, Afrofuturism. I know it wasn't coined, but which I was surprised. I did not know it wasn't coined by us. No, it wasn't. And when I found that out, and I know that in, on, on the continent of Africa, they have African futurism, 
as yeah. opposed to Afrofuturism, which is more considered African-American. But what does that, what does Afrofuturism mean for you and how does that play into what you do with um, your company? Well, for me, it's, I, I have a very narrow mm-hmm. definition of what Afrofuturism means because to me, futurism is, is related to the future. So when I think about Afrofuturism, I'm always thinking about science fiction. I'm thinking about looking into the future and um, looking at it from an Afri- African, Afrocentric perspective. Um, you know, now it's been adopted by the mainstream to be a blanket term for all fantastic fiction that's being created by Black authors. Mm-hmm. And I read a ton of, uh, a ton of um, essays by different people explaining how that's possible and how it should work, you know, like even if it's stuff that's written in the past or about the past, it still uh, has a futuristic connotation. Um, and, you know, it's, you know, I think it depends on the per- person because when I first heard the term, it was basically used to, in, in, in relation with music and art. Mm-hmm. There really wasn't any prose that anybody was writing that was considered Afrofuturism. It was yeah. basically Sun Ra and mm-hmm. um, Parliament Funkadelic, Earth, Wind, and Fire. It basically, and 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 the funny thing is, like everything else, these people doing what they were doing at the time would not have called it Afrofuturism. For them, they were doing science fiction. Mm-hmm. They were just doing science fiction from a black perspective. And in his in an African perspective, when you especially with Earth Wind and Fire, you look at some of the visuals on their albums and stuff. Oh yeah, like, yeah, they like, were really wow. you know they used they were taking that <laughs> Egyptian foundation and because there's one album that they have that actually is a double album cover and it's mm-hmm. basically got mm-hmm. the pyramids looking like you know modern buildings and spaceships yep. taking off and stuff like that. You know, so they were like taking that past and future and mm-hmm. using that past foundation and projecting it into the future. Now, mm-hmm. to me, that is Afrofuturism. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't necessarily consider Sword and Soul that I write mm-hmm. to be Afrofuturism. Okay. But in the in taking the words from one of my author friends, I don't care what you call it as long as you buy it. That's <laughs> 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 what he says all the time. But I think it's um it's an interesting concept. I think um it's the it's the term that people are using now. Um, there are some African authors who also consider their work Afrofuturism. There are some that don't. Um, uh, Nettie was the person who basically coined the term African Futurism because she felt like, you know, what she was doing was rooted in African culture, specifically in Ibu culture, who she, where she is from, um, as opposed to Afrofuturism, which is more um, associated with African-American culture. Mm-hmm. And, and I'm all about us creating our own terms to describe what we do. <laughs> I was going to ask you if you had come up with one. And the only reason I did that, um, do you know who Dr. Carr is? Um, I think he's, I don't know if he's at Howard. He's up, um, I think it's um, Greg Carr. Have you ever heard of okay. him before? No, I'm not familiar with he's him. He's a really good historian. He talks about African history and stuff like that. But he taught a class and I had a friend who was taking it. And they had to write an essay or a journal or something that embodied Afrofuturism. You had to take us where we are now and then project it into the future. Mm-hmm. And my friend wrote a story, which was, you know, and I was looking at it and helping with it, but she gave me his rundown on how you break down culture, governance, ways of knowing. It's just all of these things that you can use to break it down. And so I did that for my current novel, which I think is Afrofuturism because it's kind of set in the future and it's projecting us. My current books, they're fantasy. They're not Afrofuturism. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
Um, but when I was doing it, I came up to that term Afrofuturism. And it's like, I was saying then, I wish I had a different word, a different term for it. And I would, that's why when you said that, it kind of got me excited because I'm just wondering, have you come up with the, another term to use yet? Well, you know, you know um, Sword and Soul was a basically um, created by Charles Saunders when he was asked, because he was the first person to write um, African-based sword and sorcery. Mm-hmm. And when he was being interviewed, somebody asked him, well, what would you call it? He said, sword and soul. And, um, you know, Charles was like, you know, he's, he was growing up during the 60s and stuff. So he was really in tune to that, to that, that concept. Mm-hmm. Um, Steam funk is the same way. Um, to me, you know, the, part of the reason of defining it is because in so many instances, when things that we do as a people have been defined and by other people, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. and comes with their definitions and their restrictions as well. Um, for me, I, I, it was really important to try to give my whatever I was writing different names because I wanted people to know exactly what they were getting when they picked my books up. Yeah, you know, mm-hmm. when you buy Sword and Soul, you know you're getting African-based Sword and Sorcery. Mm-hmm. When you buy Steampunk, you know you're getting African-based Steampunk. Mm-hmm. You don't have to sift through anything to try to figure out what it is. It's, the, the name itself is telling you what you're getting, you know. Okay. And I think, and I think for us as a people, um, it's important that we define ourselves. You know, um, what we're gonna, what we, what we, what we do, you know, and and give it. And, and so, to me, it's like I don't do it with everything that I do, you know. Mm-hmm. But sometimes I look at something that I'm writing and I say, you know, this is a little different. Mm-hmm. So I don't want to call it this. I want to call it something else. I want to, again, I want to, and part of it's marketing too. I want to give it something that Mm -hmm. will define it to the people who are looking for it, who are reading it. And so they'll be very clear on what they're getting when they buy that particular book or or read or listen to that particular audio book. And I can say this, looking at your list of works, and and every time you come out, because I follow you, because you're my example of how the the take care of marketing and pushing your stuff out. (laughs) But every, it's like, man, what is he doing now? Okay, this is different <laughs> from this. It's like, and I'm looking at your, it's like, man, you have, I, I agree with Minister Faust. It's like, you've got a ton load of stuff here. It's like, wow. I mean, I would ask you how, how do you manage to, I mean, you have a job, you have a family, day job, or you had a day job, I don't know if you still have it. You have a business, two businesses that you mentioned, but yet you put out all of this content. And you're winning awards and stuff, so you actually have time to submit it and deal with that. And you're going to conventions. It's like, <laughs> well, <laughs> I I read a when I before I got into writing, um, I was reading this article about this guy who writes screenplays. Mm-hmm. He was actually he was actually um, a uh, instructor in college, and he wrote the screenplay for Ghost. Okay. And he had originally he had originally written this screenplay for another movie that I can't remember. The movie didn't do that well, but he won an Oscar for best screenplay. And that gave him the opportunity to write the screenplay for Ghost. Mm-hmm. And he said that he would write, he would write one page of script every day. And the average length of a script is 90 pages. So every three months he had a complete script, a completed script. Mm-hmm. And then he would put that in the mail, send it out. And the next day he started writing his next script. And he said, that's how he basically did it. And so my thing was, okay, Milk, when you start doing this, you're going to write a page a day. That's going to be your thing, a page a day. And that's how I started. Every morning I'd get up earlier than I normally would and I'd sit there and I would write, you know. And then at the end of the day, when I got home, I would finish that page. 
So I write a page a day. So you well, know, and even if you had to break it up in, in the chunks, maybe start at the beginning of the day and then maybe finish it at the end of the day, you made sure that you did a page a day. Exactly. I blocked out that time. And see, that's one thing I tell a lot of people. I say, you don't, you don't, you don't really realize how much free time you actually have. I said, I said, I said, look at your day and look at how you spend your day. And I bet you'll find at least two or three hours where you're actually not doing nothing. You may be sitting in front of a television or something like that. And some people need that as relaxed time. So I'm like, instead of me doing this, let me take that hour. Mm-hmm. And instead of like maybe watching TV or flipping through the newspaper, I'm going to take that one hour and I'm just going to sit there and write that entire hour, you know. And, so that, that's and that was my pieces of advice for people. Right. Right. Be consistent. Write every day. And yeah. pick a time. And be, I'm assuming you're saying be consistent with the time you pick also. Yeah, because I found out my best time of the day was in the morning. Mm-hmm. When I came home in the afternoons after I got settled, I just didn't have a focus to sit down and create. So I use my even, evenings to revise and edit and stuff. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But in the morning, that was like, that was creation time because my mind was fresh. I wasn't thinking about anything else. So I could sit down and pick up where I left off. And on the weekends, I wrote more because it was Saturday or Sunday. I had more time. But during the week, it was a, at least at least uh, an hour a day. Mm-hmm. And I tried to, my best at least write that page a day. You know? And so that's your secret to producing so many diverse, yet cohesive. And I don't write long books either. I mean, I'm not, I don't write 100,000 word books, you know. That's, uh, that's just not that's not in me. I don't write, you know, epics. And well, well, that's that's interesting. What would you say is? Do you know what the average length of your novels are? I, I set a goal for my books to be at least fifty thousand words. Oh, yes, wow. my book's going to be at least fifty thousand words. Um, whether or not it goes beyond that depends on the story. I've written. I think the most I've ever written has probably been was Medji, really my first book. Mm-hmm. Now Medji has. A ton of Medji's like the longest book I ever wrote. Mm-hmm. Um, I think Medji has like um, Medji probably comes close to about a hundred thousand. Um, but I had three years to write it. <laughs> so, you so, know, so, so, was, if you were to do something like that again, you probably do a part one and part two. <laughs> yeah, and, and Medji was part one and part two because when I first wrote it, the first advice I got as a self-publisher was that somebody read the manuscript, said it's a great story, but split it into two books. Because nobody wants to write, read a 500-page book by somebody by a brand new author. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that was the advice they gave me there, and so I split the book up into two books. And, and, and when, it sounds like you found your—I don't want to say natural rhythm because you have your rhythm when you write—but you found your natural um, length, if, I, if that's a good word for it. Yeah, that's that's a comfortable length for me. I'm not a very long. I'm not a very verbose writer. Yeah. Um, I try for precision. I was very, I was really um, inspired by James Baldwin. Mm-hmm. The first time I read one of his books, I was just blown away. I was like, "How mm-hmm. you how do you say so much in so few words?" Yeah, you know, because I was coming from being damaged in school by reading James Fenmore Cooper, who would spend like two two pages describing a tree. <laughs> you know? so, so you know, so when I read James Baldwin, it was like you know, it was like culture shock. I was like, "Man, this guy's like." Telling out and describing. And so I, I kind of modeled my writing around his writing and how, you know, trying to emulate that same style. So, um, and, and to me, to do that, you have to really try to take time to find the right words. Mm-hmm. 
-hmm. you know, find those right words that's gonna, that are going to say what you need them to say. Mm -hmm. So it, it's tough for me to get to 50,000, you know, <laughs> it's, it's tough for me to get that long, but I have, I do have some books that are 60,000 mm -hmm. and I think I have maybe one that goes at about 70,000, but, mm -hmm. but it's hard for me to do that. And usually the ones that are like 70,000, 60,000 are really not a novels. They're like, you know, a collection of short stories about the same character. Yeah. And because like, like um, Edda Blessed, um, that's, it's basically like a bunch of different stories about that one character. And so because you put all those stories together, you're getting something that's like 70,000 words. And stuff. Yeah. You, you found your natural link, what feels right for you. Because yeah. even as a writer, even when I'm writing scenes, I know when a scene is going too long because I found that I have a natural, a number of words that mm -hmm. are really good scene that I know I got everything in there and it's moving. If I'm mm -hmm. going beyond that, in the back of my mind, it's like, yeah, you need to go check that. Because, yeah. yeah. And, that's the, um, and that's the good thing about being an indie writer because you know a lot of mainstream publishers, they have certain numbers like, um, somebody's like, well, you know, the average novel has to be 100,000 100, words. I said, well, they want to push for 100,000 words because mm -hmm. of their economies, they get certain discounts and stuff when they have so many pages and stuff. Mm -hmm. so a lot of it doesn't really have anything to do with, you need those many words to tell the story. It's just that you need those many words for me to get to a certain link when I make your book, the discounts kick in. So there's a, there's a lot of other things that are, that are influencing the type of book you write and how long you write it that has nothing to do with you telling the story. Yeah, and and those are some of the things that I discovered when I was researching the industry, and I'm like, I don't want all this yeah. stuff on me. I don't want all these me having to try to meet certain links because it's going to affect that and all that kind of stuff. Cool. Well, thank you for the interview. And so, what should people be looking for next from um, Milton Davis or from your company, MV Media? Well, um, in June, I'm going to do something I've never done before. I'm going to be releasing three books in June. Um, one of them is a, is a novel um, called Black Rose, which is my first historical fiction novel. Mm -hmm. um, and two of them are going to be anthologies. One is going to be the um, Terminus 2 anthology, which is a follow-up to our Terminus anthology from the Atlanta Futurism Group in Atlanta. And the other one is going to be the long-awaited Spy Funk anthology. <laughs> we started in 2017 and we're finally getting it out this year. And stuff. So that's probably the biggest thing that we've got uh, going on right now. All right. Well, thank you, Milton Davis, for taking the time to drop all this knowledge on us. And we really appreciate it, man. Hey, thanks, man. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to another edition of the Urban Guru Podcast. And of course, you can always find us on iTunes. Just search for Urban Guru and you'll find our podcast listed. You can also listen to this podcast on SoundCloud. Just search for Urban Guru Podcast and you'll be able to find it there, too. Thank you again for listening, and remember, no matter whatever your creative endeavor is, always push forward because every step that you take along that path will lead you to your ultimate destination. So I'll see you next time.